Father, thank you so much for the privilege you've given us this morning to pause and to reflect on the true meaning of Christmas. And just as our brother sang, we often wonder what Mary knew. But we thank you for your word. And we know what the angel Gabriel said to her. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He'll be great, and we'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Father, we know how Mary responded, and we thank you for her example of faith and total surrender to the work of the Lord in her life. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Father, we know who Jesus is and how great he is. We thank you for your revealed word. But God, my burden this morning is that what we know will not become so familiar to us that we are not in awe of Jesus. The greatest gift that you have ever given to this world. So I pray this morning, Father, as we open your word, that you will awaken within us a new and fresh worship and celebration of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And I pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Shane and Angela, thank you so much for preparing our hearts and our minds to receive God's word this morning. You are you're a blessing to the body of Christ. Thank you. Some of you may know or may not know that each Wednesday, our church hosts a special outreach ministry to adults with special needs called Five Alive. On average, between our friends and their support workers, we have around 200 people who gather each Wednesday downstairs in the fellowship hall. Our evenings are filled with singing, Bible lessons, fun activities, great snacks, that's why I serve in that ministry, and uh, much, much more. But one of the favorite games we love to play together is called, Can You Guess What It Is? Where we'll put an image up on the screen that at first is all blurry, and then slowly we make it clearer and clearer until everyone can see exactly what it is. And I was just thinking about our time together this morning, I was reflecting in a similar way, often when we study God's Word, in particular the New Testament. Looking back into the Old Testament gives us clarification and a fresh perspective. Such is the case with the account of Christ's birth recorded in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. God's work throughout the Old Testament clarifies and highlights the importance of Messiah born in Bethlehem. So as we look back to the connection between three Old Testament prophecies and the arrival of Christ, I pray it will cause each of us to celebrate Christmas this year with a fresh perspective, even though it is a story that is so familiar to us. 
If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 2. We'll be reading 10 verses, beginning in verse 13 through to 23. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and a great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. More than 60 times in his gospel, Matthew quotes from Old Testament prophetic passages, wanting to clearly demonstrate to the converts from Judaism whom he was addressing that Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises and is the long-awaited Jewish nation's Messiah. This Christmas season, we've been looking at the theme of God so loved the world he gave us. And the first week we looked at, he gave us himself, Emmanuel, God with us. Last week we looked at, he gave us a king to worship and to follow. And this morning we're going to celebrate together that he gave us the promised deliverer. And so I want to highlight three reasons for celebrating the gift of the promised deliverer this Christmas. And the first one is this, we are no longer enslaved to sin. Because the promised deliverer came, we are no longer enslaved to sin. In these 10 verses, we see that the prophecies Matthew quotes from the Old Testament were ultimately fulfilled in Christ. But what we cannot miss is they came about as the result of Joseph's obedience to the Lord's direction in his life. In verse 13, 19, and 22, three times, an angel of the Lord visited him in a dream, Highlighting again for us, as we learned that very first week when we studied the miraculous, mysterious incarnation. Highlighting the supernatural nature of Christ's arrival. And in the first dream in verse 13, Joseph is told to get up. It says there, get up. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Then in verse 14, we see how Joseph, remember earlier on in chapter 1, was called a righteous man. We see how a righteous man responds to the Lord's direction in his life. Notice in verse 14, he first obeys immediately. In verse 14, it says, So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt. As I was studying this week, Joseph did everything young fathers are told not to do with babies today. 
Don't wake them up. Especially in the middle of the night. Now, I'm, the Lord knew when the sun needed to come to the earth because if it was in our day, we'd have to shut off this white noise first, turn the, turn the fans off, and there was a lot more to do now than there was then. He simply woke up his child immediately. Right? That's what he did. And what did he do? He obeyed immediately. In the middle of the night. Young fathers, don't try this if your wife doesn't give you permission. Joseph took his wife and son and they traveled, listen, at least 65 kilometers, which was the shortest distance then from Bethlehem to the Egyptian border. And as I study this passage, we look at it together, think about all the parallels to events happening in our world today. And so he headed out. It'd be the same as walking from Oshawa to Coburg, a 12-hour hike. So before any of us complain about all the holiday travels we have to do this few days, it could be a lot worse. Secondly, we see that Joseph not only obeyed immediately, but he also obeyed fully. He obeyed fully. Look at verse 15. Where he stayed, that's in Egypt, until the death of Herod. And why is this so important? And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. You see, Matthew is quoting from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And in the Old Testament context, the prophet Hosea is referring to, Ma to God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt, which is important to understand because that brings clarity to the point that Matthew is wanting to make in his gospel surrounding the arrival of Christ. How does it do that? Well, you'll recall, in Exodus, God used ten miracles, ten plagues to deliver Israel. The first nine were all leading up to the tenth and final one, when the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, including the firstborn of all the livestock. But for His people, He made a way for them to escape the plague of death. And you're familiar with the story. They were instructed to put the blood of an unblemished lamb on the lentil and the two doorposts of the entrances to their home. And when the Lord saw the blood, he would what? He would pass over. Without judgment, he would show them mercy. The Passover was a picture of God's gracious deliverance, which for his people in Exodus reached its climax in chapter 14, when God fully and finally saved them from the hands of the Egyptians at the Red Sea. So, with this in mind, fast forward to where we started our text this afternoon. In verse 13, the night the angel of the Lord told Joseph, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Why is this so significant? Matthew, carried along by the Holy Spirit, is helping those who he is addressing in his time to see that this Jesus, the King of the Jews, has been born to come and launch an even greater exodus than those of your ancestors. The red-eyed trip to Egypt for Joseph, Mary, and Christ was about much more than simply running away from Herod. It was part of God's working to paint a picture of what the future deliverance will look like because Christ, the deliverer, has been born. Notice the parallels between the mercy of God in the Old Testament 
and the mercy of God in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God saved his people miraculously, delivering them from Egypt. Now, in the context of the New Testament, Matthew, writing of the account of Joseph, Mary, and Christ escaping to Egypt, affirms how God will miraculously save his people by bringing the de promised deliverer, where? Out of Egypt. Just as Israel, God's people, referred to as the Lord's firstborn son, was brought out of Egypt. So now we see Jesus, God's son, our deliverer, was also brought out of Egypt. And in Exodus, God saved his people from enslavement to the Egyptians. But praise God, in the Christmas story, he sent his son, the promised deliverer, to free mankind from the enslavement to sin. This is why in chapter 1 we read, Joseph was told in verse 21 to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Listen to what is written in Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died, that is to their sinful nature, has been set free from sin. Sin no longer dominates us. It no longer has control over us. Listen to the words Paul writes Titus in Titus chapter 2 verses 11 to 12. I love this. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and purify us for himself, a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. The grace of God that Paul is writing about to Titus, spoken of here, is not simply the divine attribute of God's undeserved favor towards us, but it is particularly referring to Jesus Christ himself. Grace incarnate. God's supremely gracious gift to fallen mankind. Church family, we've been going through the book of Acts and studying the amazing, beautiful reality of the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And can I just tell you, one of the greatest ways I experience the power of the Holy Spirit in my life is the ability and the moment of temptation to say no. Have you ever thought of that as an amazing gift of Christmas? The ability that we now have to say no to ungodliness. That is an incredible gift. And to be able in that moment when your flesh is desiring something that is contrary to God's will to say no and to say yes to righteousness. So I, I call myself this week, I call you this morning, rejoice. Jesus came at Christmas as our deliverer to free us from being enslaved to sin. Are you still enslaved to sin? Are you unable to say no to the desires of your flesh? Or are you experiencing the thrill? And it is a thrill. The thrill of God's grace empowering you to say no. No to ungodliness and to say yes to righteousness.
What a gift. We are freed from enslavement to sin. Secondly, though, our lives are not hopeless because Jesus, the promised deliverer, has come. Our lives are not hopeless. Jesus came as the promised deliverer. There is hope in the midst of hurt and there is life in the midst of death, which you have experienced as a family this year. There is hope and there is life. In verse 8, Herod makes it appear to the Magi that he is interested in also worshiping Jesus, the newborn king. He sends them out and he says, please return so that I too may come and worship. But we know from verse 3 and here in verse 16 that his intention was never to worship Christ, but rather to kill him. Makes you wonder, how could an innocent child be such a threat to a grown man to the point that he was determined to kill him? Ever thought about that? Well, you see, Herod was a leader full of pride and paranoia. What you may not know is he had 10 wives. That would make me paranoid as well. <laughs> and each wife gave birth to a prince for him. And each of those male princes were scheming to succeed. Who's going to be number one? Knowing that there can only be a single number one. As one author said, so if there weren't two or three collateral plots taking place before they had orange juice in the morning, you knew something was wrong. This is the atmosphere Herod was living in. So in his paranoia, Herod saw Christ, the one born king of the Jews, even though a child, as a potential threat to his reign. And so when he realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, who having been warned in a dream by God to not go back to Herod, but to return home to their country by another route, Herod was furious. And gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Herod, being a self-centered, pride-filled, paranoid, bloodthirsty man, caused a lot of hurt and pain. Not only in his own family, but in the families of those living in Bethlehem at that time. You know, the sudden death of any loved one is heart-wrenching. But as I studied this week, I thought, you know, Herod's actions were even more devastating on the families of Bethlehem because it involved the murder of their innocent infant sons. And the impact of such a terrible tragedy seems to be felt even harder in small communities. For example, reflect back. Most of you likely remember where you were when you heard about the Humboldt Broncos bus crash that tragically killed 16 people, most of them young, hockey-playing sons. It was an event that froze Canadians. And as a nation, we watched a small community in Saskatchewan mourn such great loss. You see, Bethlehem at the time of Herod's atrocious, ordered massacre would have been a village of only about 1,500 people. Today, there will be 1,500 people between the two services gathered here. That's how small Bethlehem was. Historians figure that there probably wouldn't have been more than about two dozen babies, two years and older. And half of them could have been female. I thought about that. I thought, really? And then I thought, yeah, on a Sunday morning, Tamara, there's probably about two dozen babies in that two-year-old room. 
So you can imagine the sore and pain of such loss in that small community of Bethlehem. This is why in verse 17 and 18, Matthew records, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. In its Old Testament context, the prophet Jeremiah was referring to the time when the people of God were taken into exile. The Babylonians had come and attacked Jerusalem, raided their homes and destroyed the whole city. They were taken hostage to a place called Ramah, which was just north of Jerusalem, where they were put into caravans and separated from one another. It was a scene of unimaginable heartache and sorrow. Much like those in Bethlehem were experiencing at the time when Christ arrived. And so carried along by the Holy Spirit, Matthew quotes from Hosea chapter from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. But in the midst of all the pain, sorrow, and heartache of the death in the Babylonian exile, Jeremiah gives God's people good news. God does not forget his people. And through a new covenant, his own, including you and I, will never be left hopeless. I want you to listen to the verses that follow verse 15, which is what Matthew quoted from Jeremiah. Listen to the good news Jeremiah gives the people in relation to the Babylonian attack. This is what the Lord says, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. And how is this going to happen? God was going to initiate a new relationship, a new covenant with his people. Same chapter, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Listen to what the prophet writes. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So when Matthew quotes Jeremiah to those he's addressing, it's as if he's saying in the midst of the bitter tragedy in Bethlehem, the promised hope of the future spoken of by Jeremiah has arrived. Jesus, the promised deliverer, has come. A new king is born. A king who will conquer death. A king who will heal hearts. A king who will reconcile people to God. Jesus, the babe in the manger. The boy, two years and under, who Herod was trying to kill. The newborn king came to be the mediator of the new covenant. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free, there's that enslavement theme again, from sins committed under the first covenant. Jesus' coming brought hope 
in the midst of hurt and life in the midst of death. Bethlehem was a place of death, but the birth of Jesus made it a place of life. And because of his sinless life, sacrificial death on the cross, and his triumphant resurrection, listen, everyone who places their faith in Jesus, the promised deliverer, has a bright future filled with hope. This is the good news of Christmas. Rejoice. Rejoice. Jesus came at Christmas as our deliverer to enable people like you and I to experience a life that is not hopeless. We can live with confident expectation of what God had promised. And our confidence is not wishful thinking. It is grounded in his faithfulness and his word. So I ask you this Christmas, are you enjoying the strength that comes from your hope in Christ? Or are you this morning, Christmas 2023, still feeling hopeless? Jesus came as the deliverer to free you, to free me from enslavement to sin, to allow our lives to not be hopeless. And finally, the third reason to rejoice that Jesus, the promised deliverer, has come is we are saved from God's wrath. We are saved from God's wrath. In verse 19 and 20, we see that Joseph did what the angel of the Lord had told him to do. In verse 13, he remained in Egypt until he was given further instructions. And in verse 20, he receives the next instructions from the angel of the Lord. What does the angel say to him in verse 20? Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are death, are dead. It's impossible not to notice the parallel between what we just read, the instructions that were given to Joseph to get up, take the child, go to the land of Israel. Those trying to kill you are dead. And the call of Moses in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 19. Listen to what the Lord told Moses then. Now the Lord said to Moses, in Midian, go back to Egypt. For all those who wanted to kill you are dead. As God's son, the promised deliverer, Jesus was in Egypt and was called out to go to Israel. Moses, used by God to deliver his people, was outside of Egypt, hiding for his life, and was called by God to return to Egypt. In both cases, the redemption and the deliverance plan of God was in action. And just as it took courage for Moses to return to Egypt, it took courage for Joseph and his family to leave Egypt and return to Israel. That's why it only makes sense when we read in the text that Joseph, when he heard that Archelaus, Herod's son, was reigning in Judea, that he was afraid to go there. Because Archelaus was as wicked as his father. And as we read in the scriptures, God, isn't it just awesome what God knows the fears we have? And in that moment, having been warned in a dream, Joseph withdrew to the district of Galilee and went on and lived in a town called Nazareth, which had been their home earlier. But even there, in that simple detail, there was something going on that was more significant than just returning home. Returning to Nazareth fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called 
a Nazarene. Are you seeing how when you look back to the Old Testament, things just start to become more clear? And you're like, I had no clue that that was so significant. For the third time in these verses, Matthew is pointing out that every detail of the life of Jesus was foretold in the scriptures. But what's different about this prophecy? Look at verse 23. There you will notice that Matthew does not refer to only one prophet as the two previous ones in these 10 verses. But instead he says, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, plural. That is because you will not find any specific prophecy that called Jesus a Nazarene. So why did the Holy Spirit inspire Matthew to make a point of this? Watch. We learn throughout the rest of Matthew's gospel and the other gospels that Nazareth was not a very well-respected place. In fact, it was at the bottom of the socioeconomic scale, to say the least. You remember in John's Gospel, when Nathanael heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, he responded, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Trivia question, how many of you remember the city Pastor Rick mentioned, can anything good come out of? Good, you've forgotten it. I'm not going to remind you. You see, Nazarenes were mocked, despised, and rejected. And it is the connection of Christ being from Nazareth and, and, and those who are from that area of being rejected and scorned, which is what the prophets were all referring to. That is the connection they're making. He's from Nazareth. Therefore, he's going to be one who's going to be rejected, despised, and scorned. And we see this so evident in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 to 3. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Right from Christ's first advent, Israel did not welcome him. And this seems to be the point that Matthew is trying to get at with those he's addressing. The king who has come is going to be rejected by the world. He will be a Nazarene, despised, scorned, rejected. And isn't that exactly what happened? The king of the universe who came to save sinners was despised and rejected right from the start by the very sinners he came to save. Whether that be Herod, the chief priests, or the scribes. They all set themselves up as enemies of Jesus. As with most stories that we love, even biblical ones, you have the good guys and the bad guys, don't you? And of course, we all love to identify ourselves with the Good guys, exactly. And in Matthew 2, we've got good guys and bad guys. And a good lady. The good guys are the wise men. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. The bad guys, King Herod and the Jewish religious leaders. Whom do you identify with more in the Christmas story? By God's grace and His grace alone. Most of us would probably say, Pastor Calvin, I relate with the good guys. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. But can I remind you what I was reminded of this week? We must never forget. We were all 
by nature enemies of God and deserving of wrath. God's just judgment of our sinful nature. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 through 3 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. I just pray that the Holy Spirit will allow the words of these verses to settle into your mind so you'll have a clear, fresh perspective of why we celebrate the promised deliverers come. You were dead. I was dead in my transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The Spirit is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But at the same time, we were all by nature also undeserving of being saved from God's wrath. But Christmas... Listen to what it says in Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 9. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Praise God. Praise God. He loved the world so much. He gave us the promised deliverer to save us from God's wrath. Brothers and sisters, the story of Matthew 2 and the story of Christmas are not simply about what happened 2,000 years ago. They're not simply about what happened years even earlier than that in the time of the Old Testament with Matthew referred to. The story of Christmas is about you it's about me. We're all enslaved to sin and in need of deliverance. We're all familiar with the pain and hurt that comes from living in a broken world and need deliverance from living a hopeless life. And in our sin, we're all enemies of God in need of deliverance from his wrath. And God loved us so much. He gave us Jesus who meets every one of those needs. The good news of Christmas, brothers and sisters, is everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So rejoice. Jesus came at Christmas as our deliverer to redeem us and rescue us from God's wrath. I ask you this morning, are you confident that you are saved from God's wrath? Are you confident If so, does your whole life reflect that you are forever grateful for his deliverance? Romans 8, 1 and 2 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You can't give me three better gifts than being enslaved from my sin or being able to live a life that is not hopeless 
and of knowing with confidence I am saved from God's wrath. This is why I and my family are going to choose to rejoice this Christmas because the promised deliverer has come. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for speaking to us this morning and reminding us you have not forgotten us. You sent Jesus to be the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies and promises. Our deliverer. And so, Father, as a church family this morning, as those who you have redeemed and call out of, called out of darkness into marvelous light, we will choose to rejoice. We will rejoice. Thank you for all that you have done for us, a story that is so familiar to us. Father, may we be reminded afresh this morning, no longer enslaved to sin. Our lives are not hopeless. We've been saved from God's wrath. Thank you, God, for making this possible through sending us Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Twice in that passage, the angel of the Lord told Joseph, get up. And so I invite you this morning, let's get up off of our seats and let us declare with all of our heart, soul, mind, body, and strength that we are grateful that Jesus is our Savior. Will you join Pastor Steve and Pastor Jordan as they lead us in our closing song? Brothers and sisters, if the promised Messiah did not come, you are still enslaved to your sins. I'm still enslaved to my sins. There is no hope. We have hopeless lives. And we are subject to His just judgment for our sins. But the good news and why we as followers of Jesus Christ have to be the happiest, most celebrating, rejoicing people in Durham region is because He did come. And these are truths and realities that we experience. But here's the thing. It's not just for us to experience. We all know people enslaved to sin. We all know family members who live lives that are hopeless. And unless God, by His grace and mercy, opens their blind eyes as He did you and I, through people who share the truth with them, they are destined for eternity separated from God, facing His wrath. So brothers and sisters, we have good news. Please, let's make sure we get out and tell people that the promised Deliverer has come. Amen? Merry Christmas. God bless you.